Hello, and welcome to the Missionary Disciple Podcast by Catholic Christian Outreach. The aim of this podcast is to inspire, equip, and challenge you, our listener, to be an active and effective evangelist. I'm your host, Gerhard, a missionary here with CCO. We're currently on our summer schedule and aren't producing new content for you. Rather than leaving you high and dry, we're publishing a series of talks given at our Rise Up conference. This week's talk is on Parish Renewal by Michael Dopp. If you have any questions about evangelization, you can email us at podcast at cco.ca. All right, let's dive into the talk. Hey, it's great to have all of you here. This is wonderful. A few familiar faces that I've seen before, so uh, good to have some of you back. As, uh, as was said, the talk today is called Parish Renewal, and the subtitle I was given was, How Can We Make Church Matter Again? I'd like you to imagine a young boy that's born... And he's born to a musical family. His parents love classical music. They are always playing classical music in the home. His uncle is a classical violinist and his his aunt plays the cello. They take him to the orchestra even as a young child. He begins to play at home on the piano a little bit. Takes violin lessons and cello lessons. Whenever they're in the car, he's hearing classical music being played. In school, the only thing that he really gets excited about other than gym his music class. As he gets into high school, he begins to appreciate classical music even more, and he falls in love. He falls in love with Beethoven. And so when he goes off to university, he goes and he studies at the finest musical institutes in the world. He focuses on Beethoven. He learns all about classical music, and he learns all about Beethoven, about his music, about his passion, about his life, about his meaning. He listens to Beethoven. He listens and he listens and he listens. And he goes on and he continues to study. He becomes a great violinist himself. He's gone to all, he's heard all the great orchestras around the world. And he himself has become the expert on Beethoven. But not just on Beethoven, on Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, which since he was three years old has always captured his heart. He's listened to it over 5,000 times. And every time he hears it, speaks something into him that he didn't hear before. Last night, he was in Vienna. He went to the Vienna Concert Hall, one of the most beautiful concert halls in the whole world. And he heard, and he was preparing to hear the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. He sat, he has the perfect seat. It's halfway back, or it's two-thirds of the way back, just off-center. Now, this man also has a nephew. His nephew never liked classical music. In fact, he was never really introduced to it. As a kid, he just listened to, you know, pop music on the radio and rap and other junk like that. No offense. (laughs) And, you know, he never learned how to play music. He never played an instrument. He was never introduced. He doesn't really know who Beethoven is. But, you know, there's this really cute girl in his grade 10 science class. She's kind of an amateur violinist. And so she invited him to a concert that they're putting on at their school. And at that concert, they're going to have poor teachers teaching poorly instructed students on poor instruments how to play in a dingy basement of a school. She invites him to come. Now, he doesn't have any interest in Beethoven or in Beethoven's symphony or the Fifth Symphony or any of his symphonies, but he does find Sally Sue kind of cute. So he decides... He's going to go. I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute. I'd like you to picture in your mind's eye the uncle. As the uncle is arriving at the concert hall in Vienna, he's wearing his tuxedo. He's got a fancy bow tie with music notes on it. He's sitting down. All the ladies are dressed in the most beautiful ball gowns. The orchestra is warming up. Now picture the nephew. The nephew is arriving dusting the snow off his jacket and covering up the holes in his jeans as he sits down on a cheap plastic chair, kind of halfway behind a pillar. The students are trying to tune their instruments. And then simultaneously at both places, the room gets really quiet.
Now here's my question for you. Last night, which one of them heard Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Well, it's an obvious question, isn't it? I mean, what's the answer? You're not really sure. You're sort of saying, well, the answer is that they both heard it, right? But you're also saying, well, maybe, maybe only the uncle heard it. Maybe the, maybe the young one, maybe, I mean, he heard the notes, but he didn't hear the soul of it. Why didn't he hear the soul of it? Because even though Beethoven's fifth is Beethoven's fifth, if you're on poor instruments in the church, ba- in a school basement, if you have people that don't know how to play it, that don't know its passion and its soul and what it means, then you kind of hear the same notes, but you don't really hear what Beethoven's doing. But if you spent your whole life studying it, you know every note, you know everything that is behind it, you know its meaning and its heart and its soul, then you can really hear it. When we go to Mass, the most beautiful cathedral, with the most beautiful music, with the holiest priest, we receive Jesus in the Eucharist. When we go to Mass at a rundown, ugly church with a priest that isn't that holy and bad music, we receive the Eucharist. See, there's nothing wrong with Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. There's nothing missing in it. There's nothing lacking in it. But there's two things that make it possible for somebody to truly hear Beethoven's Fifth. Number one, that everything that surrounds it allows the beauty of it to come forth. The instruments, the concert hall, the musicians, the guy standing up there with the little wand, the conductor, all of those things create the conditions for the true beauty of it to shine forth. And the second thing that makes it possible is that we have ears to hear it. that we can hear it and love it and appreciate it and allow it to speak into our hearts. And the same is true with the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the Eucharist. But there's something about the environment, something about the liturgy, something about the preaching and the music and the celebration of it that allows the fullness of what God wants to give us to come forth. And then there's a second dimension. There's our subjective capacity to receive it. The uncle had the subjective capacity to receive Beethoven's fifth. The nephew didn't. He hadn't been trained for it. And we need to, in an analogous way, have our hearts and our souls trained for receiving Christ. That we can receive all that he wants to give us. So when the subtitle of my talk that I'm given is how we can make church matter again, I want to say that's not the right question for me to talk on because church always matters. There's nothing wrong with the church. There's nothing wrong with the sacraments. There's nothing wrong. God isn't kind of not giving us enough. It's that sometimes we're like the nephew that doesn't have the ears to hear and the heart to receive everything that God desires to give to us. Okay. So we're going to look at today parishes, and we're going to talk about the two things that we can work on, which is how the the beauty, the truth, the goodness that surrounds everything going on in the parish and our own subjective um, response to the grace that God wants to give us. Because here's the reason I wanted to kind of spend the first 15 minutes of my talk talking about Beethoven is people say, well, but we have Jesus in the Eucharist. Isn't that enough? And the answer to that is, it's kind of a yes and a no. It is a yes. Of course it's enough. But you know, Beethoven deserves to be played by great musicians. He deserves to be heard in great concert halls. It's not enough just to have some six-year-old play Beethoven in the basement and say, that's a beautiful piece. No, it's not. I mean, Beethoven's fifth is what it is. It's beautiful. But, but what? but we're also called to be part of that. And God invites us to be part of that in parishes. So yes, we have the Eucharist 
the gift of Jesus himself. Yes, we have the sacraments, we have the church, and we have the catechism, we have the angels and the saints and the magistrate, we have all of that. But sometimes I feel like we put that in a church basement and we haven't received the full gift that God wants to give to us. All right, so here we go. The first question we have to ask is, do parishes need to be renewed? I mean, if we're going to talk about parish renewal, someone will say, well, why, why even bother? Well, I think in order to answer that, we have to answer a more fundamental question, which is what does the parish exist in order to do? I mean, for something to be renewed means it's made new again. It starts again being what it ought to be. Well, what does the parish, what's the purpose of the parish? Well, it would be interesting to do a survey if you asked 100 people out in the, you know, Rideau shopping center today, what's the purpose of a Catholic church? You get all sorts of different answers. You get people saying all sorts of crazy things. Some, some would just not know. Some would say, I have no idea. Some might say, you know, the church, a parish exists, you know, to meet people's spiritual needs, to make them feel good, to oppress women, to take people's money, <laughs> to, you know, to be a place for those that are uneducated and don't care about science. Um... It's, you know, a sense of community. Uh, it's just where Catholics go because that's just, you know, they're born into it. I mean, you, you get all sorts of strange answers. And even if you went back to your home parish, the parishes you grew up in, you asked somebody who's lived in that town or your city but never goes why that church exists, you get one answer. And then if you ask, the, you know, the 68-year-old member of the CWL, the little busybody who's involved in everything and knows all the gossip... <laughs> you get a different answer. And then if there's a 22-year-old who's going through a really difficult time in their life, and they're just trying to figure this out, and they came once in a while, you might get a different answer from them. I want to ask you another question. Why does Starbucks exist? Anyone know? This is not a trick question. To make money, they write. And they make a lot of it because they charge you six bucks for a Starbucks coffee. And how do they make that money? I kind of gave it away. By selling overpriced coffee, right? Right, Jackie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I knew she'd have one. That's, okay, so is there anyone here who would disagree with me if I said Starbucks exists to make money and they do it by selling coffee and overpriced treats? Anyone disagree? How do you know that? How does anyone here know that's what Starbucks exists to do? How many of you work for Starbucks? Really? Well, okay. So one person, so she can't talk. Any, everyone else? Anyone else? Anybody here own Starbucks stock? Any of you here read their mission statement? Any of you interviewed their CEO? Okay, so none of you have any real connection to Starbucks other than being what? Customer. So the only information you have about Starbucks is what you've seen when you go in. And every Starbucks you've gone to, what do they do at that Starbucks? They sell overpriced coffee and treats, right? You never walk into a Starbucks and say, oh, gosh, they sell vacuum cleaners here. That's funny. Because <laughs> in Kingston, they sell coffee. Because every Starbucks in the entire world does one thing. And they do it really, really, really well. Because that's what they exist to do. And you know what? There's a little Starbucks just down the stairs there. And I guarantee you, when the workers came in this morning, they didn't say, so what do you think we should sell today? No, I mean, gosh, we've been doing coffee for like 15 years. <laughs> got to like mix it up a bit. Maybe we should do like an aerobics class. Oh, that'd be fun. Maybe we could sell oranges. That'd be cool. Well, what about, you know, no, 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 no. Every day they go in there, they sell the same thing over and over and over again. And if you saw them doing something, you say, well, that's kind of weird because that's not what Starbucks does because that's not what Starbucks exists to do. Do you know why we get a hundred people giving a hundred different reasons for why the Catholic church exists? Because it's not clear from our experience of parishes what a parish exists to do. And most parishes have no clarity on their mission. They have no idea why they exist. And because they have no idea why they exist, they're like the Starbucks worker that comes in the morning and says, what should we sell this morning? Should we sell vacuum cleaners? Should we tell, sell tabletops? Should we start catering? Should we sell coffee? Should we run fancy t-shirts? Should we maybe do trips to Aruba? Who knows? What should we do today? Because they don't know what their mission is. And when there's, when there's a lack of clarity in the mission, then we go in all sorts of different directions. But here's the question. 
even though it seems like most people don't get why the Catholic Church exists and why parishes exist, and even that the vast majority of Catholics couldn't give you an accurate and articulate answer to a very simple question, why does the church exist? The church herself is crystal clear on it. And it started with the Great Commission. When Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus was giving the church her mission. He didn't say, you guys, you know what? You guys have been following me around. You're awesome. I love you guys. Just go do it. You know, just go take care of whatever you need to take care of. Jesus said, here is the mission that I am giving to the church. And it is to go and make disciples. It's to baptize. It is to lead people into the fullness of communion with God. The mission of the church was given to her at the Great Commission. And what's the Great Commission? It's the call to mission. It's the call to evangelize. And the church has always known that. Pope Paul VI, and just in very recent time, in the last 50 years, the church has re-emphasized it. Pope Paul VI said, the church is missionary by her very nature. She exists in order to evangelize. Pope Francis said, the task of the church is evangelization. Pope John Paul II said, I sense the moment has come to commit all of the church's energies to the new evangelization and the mission agendas. The church herself is crystal clear in why she exists, that she exists in order to evangelize. That means to make the good news of Jesus Christ known to everybody. Now, how does the church do this? How does the church actually evangelize? Well, it's actually it's kind of pretty simple. So you have the church universal. Let's call this the universal church. In order to carry out her universal mission, she divides every square inch of this planet into dioceses. So right now we're in the Archdiocese of Ottawa. If you know, you're all from different places, you're within some diocese in Canada. What do you think the mission of the diocese is? It's to carry out the mission of the church in this particular geographic region. So if the mission of the church is to evangelize, the mission of each diocese is to? Okay. So how does, that was pretty, anyway, less enthusiastic than I was hoping for. <laughs> I'm going to give you another chance in a second though, so get ready for it, okay? If the diocese exists in order to evangelize, how does the diocese carry that out? Well, the primary structure that the diocese uses for making the good news known in their generally geographic region is the parish. Every square inch of a diocese is covered by a parish. So if the universal church exists to evangelize, therefore, by extension, the diocese exists in order to? And therefore, the parish exists in order to? Yeah. I mean, it's not any more complicated than that. The parish exists to carry out the universal mission of the church in a particular region. That's what it exists to do. The difficulty is that many parishes don't even know that. From the pastor all the way down to, all the way through, through ministry leaders, through staff, through active lay people, through inactive lay people, through all across, very few people realize the very reason that God has given for that parish to exist. Okay, so the question is, is our parish, or are our parishes living out the mission that they're called to. Think of the parish that you grew up in or think of the parish that you're engaged in right now. Is that, mission, is that parish committing all of its energies to the new evangelization? Is that parish a place where the unconverted can come and experience the good news and encounter Christ and have conversion? Is that parish a place where the converted are becoming saints and the unconverted are becoming Christian? Or instead... Does your parish sometimes feel more like a social club? Feels more like a do your duty to God club and then you can go home on Sunday after 48 minutes. Does your parish feel like a place that you leave unchallenged, uninspired, and unchanged? 
Or is your parish a place where you and all members are regularly transformed, not just by God's grace, by everything that that parish is? That you are challenged to be a great saint. You are inspired to love God and to serve him. Because if your parish isn't doing that, it's not doing what Jesus is calling it to do. So back to my first question. Do our parishes need to be renewed? Well, my experience has been, and I kind of spend my life traveling and speaking in parishes, that the vast majority of Catholic parishes have lots of people with goodwill, lots of people who are seeking to love God, who want to serve him, but who are not living out the mission in their parish that God gave to them, whether it's the lay people or the parish staff, sometimes even the pastors. So I would argue that yes, yes, our parishes are desperately in need of renewal. Here's one way to think about it. There's 25,000 Catholic churches in North America, about 17 to 18,000 in the United States, 7 to 8,000 here in Canada. How many of those 25,000 parishes are growing because of the work of evangelization? Now, parishes can grow for all sorts of reasons. They can grow because the neighboring parish closed. They can grow because they're in a suburb that's, you know, the population is rapidly expanding. They can grow because they've got a, a priest that everybody loves, and the neighboring parish has a priest that people don't like. There's all sorts of reasons parishes grow. But those are all just kind of, you know, outside of the control of the parish. And those have really nothing to do with the spiritual vitality of the parish. I mean, I know one parish, and they think they're rocking it because they get, you know, 3,500 people at Mass in a weekend. They serve a population of 60,000 people. So within their population, they have like 30,000, they have like 25,000 Catholics. So they're getting like, you know, 12% of the Catholic population coming to Mass. It's like, well, that's great to have 3,500, but what about the other 57,000 people that aren't coming? It looks like they're a growing, big, dynamic, bursting parish. It's all demographics. I know parishes where people, for what, you know, this is not a good reason to leave your parish, but they don't like the priest. So they just follow the popular priest around. Well, sure, he's got lots of people. But it's just because what? Because his homilies are funny or because you like the music better, or, you know, whatever it is. It's not a sign of spiritual vitality. People aren't having conversions. It's not growing because there's more Catholics coming, more people coming to the Catholic church. Of those 25,000, I would suggest that less than 100, probably significantly less than 100, are growing because of the work of evangelization. Now, let's be really generous, okay? Let's say that I'm a bit of a pessimist, and the true number is 250. Okay, let's say there's 250 churches in Canada and the U.S. growing because people are living out the mission that Christ has given the church. Well, that would mean that 1% of our parishes are doing what they ought to do. Can you imagine if the CEO went around to all the Starbucks in the world, and they're like, okay, let's see who's making money by selling coffee and treats, he went, he visited 15, he visited 25,000 Starbucks. This would be Jackie's best job ever. Visit every Starbucks in the world, okay? And he finds that of the 25,000, there's 250 that are making money. And he's like, isn't that amazing? He's like, but the other ones, well, you know, they're in depressed areas and there's Tim Hortons next door and it's hard to get to and it's the winter and excuse and excuse and excuse and it's expensive there and this and that. But there's 250 that are rocking it. How long do you think his board of directors would keep him on as a CEO? He's saying, well, that's really nice. What about the other 99? Okay. So all of that, hopefully, to set up in your hearts and minds, something of the need that we have for evangelization or parishes. But you might now be saying, but Michael, that's interesting, but why should I care about it? Like, what, what does it matter to me whether my parish is renewed or the neighboring parishes are renewed? I'd like to give you five reasons why I, I hope that it matters to you or that it should matter to you. The first thing... And, and, there's an overarching reason, then I want to talk about five sub-reasons. The overarching reason is that your parish will affect your life in five ways. Here's the first way. Your own spiritual growth. 
You can fall in love with Beethoven by hearing his fifth played by a bunch of high school hacks, but it's really hard to fall in love with it when you hear it that way. You can become a great um, lover of classical music by hearing four-year-olds practice the violin, but it's really hard. But if you had the opportunity to hear the best music played by the best musicians in the best concert hall, and you had the best teachers, you would probably develop a love for it in a different way than you would otherwise. You're in CCO now, it's great, CCO is awesome, I love CCO, but CCO is like this much of a life, and then this is the rest of your life. And 12 years from now, you're gonna forget what CCO even stands for. You're gonna be like, remember when we went to Rise Up at COO? Wasn't it great? It was so amazing, I think. Where was I, was that in Ottawa? CCO feels like it's a huge part of your life right now, because it is. But when you graduate, you've got 60 years where you're not gonna have CCO, you're gonna have your parish. And a parish where Jesus Christ is proclaimed, where the converted are made into saints, where the music is beautiful and the liturgy is beautiful and the programming is fantastic and there's places for you to meet other Catholics and be friends with them and be challenged and go on retreats and do Bible studies where you get to meet the Lord. It's a lot easier for you to grow as a Christian than in a parish that doesn't have any of those things. Now you're saying, but Michael, they have the Eucharist. Yeah, yeah, of course they have the Eucharist. I grew up in a parish for 20 years that had the Eucharist. We didn't have a single convert. We didn't have any ministries. We never had good music or poor preaching. And I'm the only kid that went to that school that I, or that church that now goes to mass still. And I don't go to mass because I went to that church. I go to mass because I was part of CCO, you know, 15 years ago. I'm not saying having good music would have changed everything. It's not about the music but we didn't create the environment for people to thrive spiritually. Just like we didn't create the environment for that nephew to really hear Beethoven's fifth. Your spiritual growth is going to be tied, whether you like it or not, to the spiritual health of your parish. And there are great saints in the worst parishes, and there are great sinners in the best parishes. But speaking in general terms, the vibrancy of your parish will facilitate ongoing spiritual growth in your life. And CCO is phenomenal, but over 50 years of not being part of a healthy, dynamic, vibrant church that's living out its mission can suck your soul out. And there are, I can't tell you how many ex, how many former CCOers there are who don't even go to mass anymore. They love Jesus when they were in university as much as you love him. In fact, they probably loved him more. I was just talking to somebody last night like, I was talking to somebody yesterday afternoon about a mutual friend of ours. He used to be a seminarian, you know, getting ready for the priesthood. Now he struggles to even get to mass. He doesn't go to mass all the time. Don't think that can happen to you. And you're, we're much more vulnerable to the world, the flesh, and the devil when we're not in an intense Christian community. So the renewal of your, of your parish isn't just about making converts. It's about your ongoing conversion and sanctity. Okay. Number two, how, what else does it affect in your life? It will affect the spiritual life of your family. One day, many of you will meet a handsome young man or a beautiful young woman. They might even be sitting beside you right now. And you'll get married and you'll have children. And one day you'll think to yourself, I want my children to be saved. In fact, I don't want them just to be saved. I want my children to be head over heels in love with God. I want them to love God their whole life. I don't want them to go through all the darkness and junk that most of us go through before we kind of rediscover him later in our life. I want them to know him. Most parishes don't facilitate that. What do most 10-year-olds think of church? Yeah, I think it's boring. I don't want to be there. And that's fine. Like, Mass isn't supposed to be fun. You know, when I take my four-year-old to Mass, I often say, it's not supposed to be fun, Therese. There's lots of things we do that are fun. Mass isn't one of them. That's okay. But it's awesome. And then I, you know, then I ran to rave and preached to her for 20 minutes. That's what I do. So, you want to raise your children to be great saints. Do you know how hard that is when you don't have a great parish? Having a dynamic, vibrant, renewed parish makes it so much easier 
to be great parents. Because everything you're trying to do with these little souls, everything you're doing in your home is being echoed in the parish as well. Okay. Number three, the spiritual life of those you love. So uh, you're going to meet people, work, family, friends, all sorts of different people. You're going to want to evangelize them. Can you please explain to me how you can evangelize somebody without a strong parish? You're thinking, well, Michael, it's easy. I'll just show them the ultimate relationship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what will you do after that? Well, we'll do discovery. Okay, great. So that's going to take six weeks. So in six weeks, what are you going to do? Source, that's right. Well done. Good. And then what? Okay, then you're going to do alpha. Yeah. So now you're a year into your relationship with them. They're still only 24. So you still, you've got 70 more years of planning. What are you going to do with them? Okay, well, eventually, you're going to have to introduce them to your parish, aren't you? Like, we're Catholic. We, we're not, we don't just kind of run our churches in our, you know, in our living room, you know, doing Bible studies and drinking tea and stuff. At some point, you're going to want to bring people into the fullness of the Christian life. And I've had people, I've run evangelization programs in parishes. People come up to me and say, Michael, I can't invite anybody to my parish. Why, is the Eucharist not there? Well, of course the Eucharist is there, but Michael, there's nothing else there. If you want someone to fall in love with Beethoven's Fifth, don't invite them to a high school musical, okay? Take them to Vienna. That's how they're going to fall in love with it. It's very difficult to evangelize without great parishes. See, CCO creates something outside of the parish, but this is, but it's temporary. It's only for a few years. But you, all of that is set aside. And what do we have? The same thing that you came from in your parishes. A place where what? Where the gospel is not proclaimed clearly. Where beauty, truth, and goodness isn't celebrated necessarily. Where the mission isn't understood. If you want to be an effective missionary, and Pope Benedict said, in virtue of your baptism, you have an inherent missionary vocation. And the renewal of your parish matters. I'll be really honest with you. I can't bring people to the parish that I go to. Like there's people that I, in my life that I'm trying to, you know, do my thing with. I cannot ask, I cannot invite them to come to my parish. Like we have two evangelicals that we're really good friends with. They live right across the street. We see them all the time. They're some of our best friends. I could never invite them to my parish. Because they'd be like, why do you go there? Because they don't have the eyes to see the Eucharist. They don't have the faith yet. See, we think because we have the Eucharist, everyone's going to just see the Eucharist. Oh, no, 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 no. Sometimes with like 0.01% of the population, they encounter the Eucharist and everything else comes from that. But most often, when someone comes to our parishes, what do they remember? Remember three things. They remember the music, the homily, and whether they feel welcomed or not. Because they don't have the eyes of faith yet to receive everything God has for them. Okay. Number four, the spiritual life of your community. Do you want to live in a town, in a city, around a parish that's secular, hostile, relativistic, hedonistic? Or do you want to live in a community with faith-filled people? Because there's a lot of parishes that people go to after they leave CCO. They're the only couple, the only person, or maybe there's two or three others that have living, vibrant faith. So I'm not saying we can only be friends with Christians, actually quite the opposite, but you need to have good Christian friends. You need to have people that can support you and encourage you, that you can pray with. People that you can trust your kids to go to their house. And that they can trust you to have their kids back. A, a live parish, a renewed parish, creates an environment where you can live fully your whole life. The fifth and final reason is the salvation of souls. And that's what it comes down to. The parish exists to evangelize so people can get to heaven. Because God wants to save souls. That's what Francis Xavier got that we've forgotten. We evangelize. Even people that evangelize now, it's like, oh man, it's so great having a relationship with Jesus. Worms in my heart feel so good. I get to go to praise and worship. I'm part of CCO. So great. Here, you should give your heart to Jesus because you can come to rise up and gee, you can just, you'll experience his mercy in your heart and it's so beautiful. Yeah, well, that's not why I'm Catholic. I'm Catholic because I want to go to heaven and not hell. That's why. And being Catholic is the best way to guarantee that because this is a church Jesus founded 
And when we die, our lives are judged. And there's no like second chance. There's no like, well, you know, I wasn't really sure. And you know, it's a lot of fun to party sort of thing. It's like, did you love God or not? Did you live your life for God or not? Do you have faith or not? Did you die in sanctifying grace or not? And God's will is that everybody, every single person be saved. But he made every single person with one thing, freedom. That's the freedom to say yes to his rich, abundant, outpoured love. But it's also the capacity to say no to it. Parishes are meant to foster an encounter with that love and to facilitate a yes. That's what drove Francis Xavier to do what he did. You know, Francis, like he kind of liked what he was doing, but this wasn't the personal fulfillment of all hopes and dreams for Francis. Like he was a high, you know, he was a high jumper in university. He said high jump, you know, like he just like, he just loved the life, right? He wasn't in university saying, no, I just want to go off to India to a language I don't speak, a culture I don't understand, people that I don't know, experience hunger and shipwreck. Remember there's that part in, in I think it's in Corinthians with Paul lists, like I've been shipwrecked three times and I've been scourged. And I've been that. I remember reading a biography of Francis Xavier. I'm like, Paul, you got nothing on Francis. He's in like four, he's taking four shipwrecks and no food, also, you know, captured and all sorts of stuff. And he was desperately lonely because he loved Ignatius and he loved his Jesuit community. And he knew he was never going back. But he did it for what? To give people nice, warm, fuzzy feelings in their heart? No. He did it because he believed that the gospel could save a soul. I've been reading recently something called the Jesuit Relations, which are the letters that the early Jesuits in North America wrote. There's one about the martyr. You've heard of the Canadian martyrs. So one of them was John de Brebeuf. And, and there's one, I'm not going to go into the details because you probably won't be able to sleep tonight, but of the martyrdom of, of Jean de Brebeuf. And as he's being martyred and they're doing unimaginably cruel and horrific things to him, he preached the gospel nonstop for hours as they tortured and tortured and tortured him. He just kept preaching the gospel. He just kept preaching the gospel. What is it in a man or a woman that motivates them to do that, to leave a comfortable life in France, to come over here where the bugs drove them crazy, where they're living in poverty, they don't speak the language, and then they see other people tortured and murdered. You know what that made the other missionaries want to do? They all ran back to France? No, no, it, it redoubled their zeal for the mission. That's what Jesus wants in our heart, a heart that longs to bring other souls to him. Okay, that's what happens in a renewed parish. It's not about a renewed parish being fun or having lots of people or being a great time. Ultimately, it's about God's grace efficaciously transforming thousands and thousands of people. So how do we do it? You're saying, okay, well, I better get to that because I'm almost out of time. Okay, here's 10 ways. This is like, I'm sorry, I always go way over time. So I'm going to try to keep this quick. 10 kind of, I would say, keys to parish renewal. Now, a lot of these are going to be like, well, Michael, how the heck am I going to do that? Well, you're not, but it's good for you to know. Okay, because there's things you can't do, like you're not going to be the pastor. So, okay, 10 things. Number one, parishes. So just as you're going back to your parish, keeping these in the back of your mind. Number one, the parishes must know their identity, why they exist. This is why we get poinsettias and flea markets and you know, fundraisers for, you know, the, you know, Bunyan Society and all sorts of crazy things. Because we don't know why our parishes exist. I want you to go back, and I don't want you preaching from the rooftop why your parish exists to anybody, okay? I want you just to live it out. See, imagine that I have a vocation to evangelize, and that's what this church exists to do. So everything I do in this church, that's what I'm going to do. That, that identity drives everything. Until that identity is captured by parishes. They're going to keep floating around, not knowing what they're doing. Number two, the CEO the bit is the priest, the chief evangelization officer. He has to have, that's Chris Key's thing, so it's not mine. He has to have a vision for it. Now you're saying, well, I'm not the pastor. Well, if you're a young man, become one, okay? Just get it done. Go to seminary, get ordained, become a pastor. <laughs> Easy peasy. Okay, but if you're not going to become a priest then I would humbly suggest that you love, support, 
and encourage your pastor in everything that is good, in all the small little wins in that parish, in everything that's going well, in everything that is evangelical, to encourage him in the midst of that. Number three, you parishes that want to be renewed must understand a critical distinction between catechesis and evangelization. Catechesis, I would suggest, is directed toward ongoing conversion. It's teaching people stuff about the faith. It's kind of like theology-ish. Okay, catechesis is not directed toward conversion. Now, some people, as they just happen to learn about the faith through God's mysterious grace, have conversions, but very rarely. The purpose of catechesis is not to convert. The purpose of catechesis is to educate so that we can, the more you know, the more you love. You cannot love what you do not know. So the more we know about God in this church, the more we can love God. And instead of being mediocre saints, we can become great saints. Evangelization is primarily directed towards initial conversion, that yes to God. Now, most parishes call catechesis evangelization. Oh, we're going to evangelize, so we're going to do a book study. Oh, well, that's great. That's good if you have faith and you want to become a great saint. But if you don't have faith, doing a book study probably isn't going to evoke faith in your life. And we all think, or parishes all think, if we tweak our catechesis, it'll work. You know, we have had millions of kids go through sacramental preparation program for confirmation. And most parishes, if they have 50 people go through, the next Sunday, three show up. You've spent a year with them, and one week after confirmation, they're all gone. Why? Because we've catechized the unevangelized. We think if we teach them stuff, if we teach them to memorize the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they'll encounter the Holy Spirit and fail. That's not how it works. We have to encounter the Holy Spirit confirmation. I don't give a rip if you can tell me what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are. What I care about is that your heart is open and you have great expectations and anticipation that the Holy Spirit is going to fall powerfully on you and change your life. That's what matters to me. Don't, don't rhyme off the gifts to me. If you know them, great. I mean, I'm not, you know, please don't misinterpret what I'm saying, okay? I think the gifts of the Holy Spirit are great. But knowing them doesn't change your life. Encountering the Holy Spirit. But it's like Beethoven's fifth. If our ears aren't tuned, if our heart isn't open, that nephew could go to Vienna. He still wouldn't hear it the way his uncle heard it. Because he hasn't, he's not attuned to it. He's not open to it. We can have a beautiful, beautiful liturgy. We can pray for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But if these kids' hearts are closed, what will they receive? I remember my confirmation class, one of my friends, his mom said he didn't want to get confirmed, but his mom said, if you get confirmed, I'll buy you a pack of smokes. How? Wow. Okay. I mean, how much docility is he going to have to what God wants? Does that mean God is insufficient, that God didn't give enough grace to this young man? No, 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 no. Said he wasn't evangelized. Okay. So we have to understand the distinction between catechesis and evangelization. Tweaking catechesis is not going to change any parish. Never has, never will. Evangelizing will. Okay. Number uh, four, proper integration of the laity. So people say, oh, the Second Vatican Council said that lay people have to get involved. So I'll go either be an usher, a lector, or an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's not what the Second Vatican Council was looking for. Okay, fine. If you want to be a lector and you're a good reader, like, go for it. But the Second Vatican Council wants you to use your gifts as a layperson, like your professional gifts and the talents that he's given you. One thing parishes really struggle with is culture change, changing the culture within parishes. I met this one lady, and she worked for a, um, not a mining company, a like a, log, a logging company. What's the word I'm thinking of? Like pa- pulp and paper mills. And they were, she was, I met her in the UK. She was based in the UK. And her company bought 17 independent pulp and paper mills around the world. Seven, and they were, many of them were hundreds of years old. Uh, different languages, different cultures, different everything. And it was her job to bring all those 17 into this one mega multinational company. So she spent two years doing it, da 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 da. I said, she told me the whole story. I said, well, how did it go at the end? She said, it was amazing. 
You know, there's hiccups and whatnot, but they all got on board. That's sort of like, you know what we do with women like that in the church? We say, well, why don't you serve the tea for the Sunday pancake breakfast? And I'm like, seriously? Like, I know people that are vice presidents of their company. And what do they do? Well, they, they take care. I'm not kidding. They take care of the furnace at the church. I'm like, these people run billion-dollar business units. Like, they have all sorts of gifts and talents and passions. That's the empowerment of the laity. What are the gifts and the charism God's given to you? Anyone can be an usher or a lector, okay? God has something much greater for you. So he wants to use what he's given you in your experience and your education and who he's made you to be. So those gifts can be set at the altar of the parish and those gifts can be used because we need all sorts of, the whole variety of gifts for a great parish to thrive. Number five, we need a radical commitment to the gospel. You need to be radically committed and you need to be radically committed not to compromise with the, God, with the culture because the culture is preaching its own gospel. The culture is calling you to compromise how much? This much or this much? Just this much. Just compromise this much because if the culture can get you this much then you can just do this much and this much. No fervent, devout, faithful, God-fearing, Jesus-loving Catholic just chooses not to go to Mass on Sunday. What they do is they choose to compromise one small area of their life. And then they justify it and rationalize it. And then they compromise on a second one. And a third one. And God's saying, I want everything. I want your whole life. But, you know, when we get isolated and we're alone and we're in parishes that aren't feeding us, you know, I mean, of course, the Eucharist is feeding us, but you know what I'm saying? We're really tempted to just begin to compromise. We just say, you know what? I'll always be a faithful Catholic, but it's okay to be lukewarm just in this one little way. But that's not what your parish needs. What your parish needs is a great saint. Can you imagine what your parish would be like if Francis Xavier was a parishioner there? Or if he was the pastor? How many think he would compromise? Or Francis of Assisi? You'd say these were wild men. If they came into the room right now, you'd be like, these guys are crazy. Yeah, they are kind of crazy because they are so sold out for Christ and his gospel that it seems crazy compared to this world. We're so worried about fitting in with the world. We're so worried about you know, seeming relevant. We're so worried about not turning anyone off that we don't ever care about turning anybody on. Do you think Francis Xavier is in heaven saying, gosh, I just wish I compromised a bit more with the gospel when I was at university because I could have just gone to one more party, slept with one more woman, done one more fun thing. I really should have done that. Or do you think on his deathbed, he was saying, Lord, Lord, I've given you nothing. There is so much more I could have given to you, Lord, in my 46 years. I wasted, I wasted so much of my life. And somehow, Lord, you use me in small ways to save 100,000 souls. But Lord, Lord, if only I had heard you knocking on my heart earlier, if only I had said no to the world, the flesh and devil, and yes to your merciful embrace earlier. Lord, Lord, what great things we could have done. That's the prayer of the saint. Number six in our parishes. Our parishes must have beauty. Our parishes are starving for beauty. We have made ugly churches we have bad music, believe me. I was at Mass this morning at 8 o'clock. The music was bad. I don't care if the people love Jesus or not. If they can't sing, they shouldn't be up there. And you say, amen. You're saying, but Michael, the Eucharist is there. Yes, the Eucharist is there, but the Eucharist deserves the best. If the Queen of England was here, you wouldn't pick a grade four band to play music for her, would you? You'd pick the finest musicians. Why? Because she's worthy of it. Jesus is worthy of good music. And you're worthy of good music. You're worthy of, and that raises your heart and your soul. Music can change your life. So this morning, I'm getting ready for my little talk here, and I've got my handy-dandy little speaker. 
and I was playing Beethoven's Fifth, and I, was, and I was pretending to play the violin for my four-year-old. She's like, what's a violin? So I got a YouTube video up, and you know, one thing leads to the next, right? Oh my gosh, I was almost late for my talk. And I started to play this girl doing a compl- um, um, Beauty and the Beast. And I hear my wife get real quiet in the kitchen, and I, I feel like I'm going to start crying. And I know if I'm about to start crying, my wife is probably bawling. So I go in the kitchen. My wife is bawling. She is. I'm like, I knew you were going to be crying. She's like, Ooh. So we start dancing around the kitchen, listening to Beauty and the Beast. And then the next one that comes on is a mix of music from my favorite movie of all time, Les Mis. And I start bawling. I, and I'm like, Therese, close your eyes. Listen to the music. She's like, Daddy, why are you crying? You know why I was crying and she wasn't? Because she doesn't have the ears to hear it yet. She hasn't been trained to hear it. She's only four. She's like the nephew. Our parishes need to be beautiful. Our liturgy, our music, the decor people say, well, we should give all the money to the poor. Yes, we should give money to the poor. We should also make God's house beautiful. Never compromise on beauty. So foster beauty wherever you can. Number seven, Goodness. The first thing that people notice in parishes is goodness. In two senses, they notice whether they feel welcome or not, which they normally don't. And everyone says the evangelicals are so good at welcoming people. Listen, there is nothing in the DNA of an evangelical which makes them a nicer person than you. All of us can create welcoming parishes. Now, we have a different, our buildings are different. I'm not saying like, you know, in the pew, you're like high five and people and, you know, talking about the football game and how you're doing. But there's a parking lot, there's the steps, there's the narthex, there's all sorts of ways to make people feel welcome. The second way that we demonstrate goodness is through sanctity. And that's what converted the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a brutal place to live. And the Christians (coughs) required that husbands only had one wife. The Christians believed that all human life was sacred, even if it was a little baby girl. And the Christians would go up because at that time, a father was within his legal rights to take a young child, if he didn't want that child, that baby, and set them out to be exposed to the elements that they would die. And the Christians would go out and they would gather these children. They would raise them. And the Romans would see this and say, hmm, that's interesting. It's the kind of love that I want to have in my heart. And it was the goodness, the sanctity, the witness of the early church that converted the Roman Empire. Number eight, truth. We have to foster truth because we live in a world of lies. And the first thing we have to stop doing is lying. Let me give you one example. A man is born either a man or a man, okay? And a woman is a woman. And I don't care what surgery you have and I don't care what chemicals you take and I don't care what clothes you wear. If you were born a man, then you're a man. And the truth is that you're a man. Now, I know some people have gender dysphoria, and I know that people can get confused and all sorts of things. But just because I decide that I'm a woman tomorrow does not make me to be a woman. I was born a man, I will die a man, I will always be a man. But we're pressured. And soon the pressure is going to ramp up, because soon we'll be pressured legally, and we'll soon see people being in prison for this. We are pressured to tell the lies of the world. Just compromise this much, okay? Just have, just be compassionate to people. Just be nice to people. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. L- telling lies is not compassionate, nice, or merciful. Now, there's ways to speak the truth that's not nice, compassionate, merciful. I'm not suggesting that. But in everything, we speak truth in charity. Recognizing that God has given us the truth Why? To set us free. That the truth sets us free. We have to have the courage to speak the truth wherever we go. Because the first first victim of this postmodern secular culture is truth. Okay, number nine. Oh my goodness. I'm going to just, I'm going to skip number nine. Number 10 is is a radical openness to the Holy Spirit. Parishes need to be radically open and say, we can't figure this out. It doesn't matter how hard we work, how many plans we have, we can't do this. We need the Holy Spirit in order to come here. 
Okay, so I'm going to wrap up. I'm going to five really quick points for you, six really quick points for you. What can you do for your parishes? Number one, you can get involved. No task is too small. Don't think because you spent four years in CCO that you're going to be able to walk in the parish and tell the priest what you're doing. I'm going to be really frank with you. Your parish priest doesn't care that you're in CCO. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to most priests because they... CCO is only in a few small pockets in this country. They don't know CCO. They don't, they don't want any 23-year-old coming in thinking they know everything about everything. So I suggest get involved in whatever small and humble way you can. Show the servant's heart that you have. Show your love for God and allow that to grow into something much. You don't have to renew your parish in the next three months. You have to lay your gifts, your talents, your charisms before the parish so that the priest the pastoral staff can discern the way in which you can become more engaged. Number two, encourage, I've already alluded to this, encourage what is good. Support things that are great in your parish. With your time, with your energy, with your money, with your talents, go where the spirit is going. It's easy in parishes, after you've been there for a number of years, to, be, to become frustrated, cranky, and know-it-alls. Okay? Don't be like me. Okay, don't do that. Don't lose the simple enthusiasm for the faith that you have. Bring light and encouragement. If there's a hundred things in your parish that you think are a waste of time and there's two things that are great, don't worry about the hundred. Pour all your time and energy into the things where God is working, where God is moving. Number three, offer yourself to the leadership. Don't force it. See, Father, this is who I am. You know, get to know the priest. Let him get to know you. Let him see your talents. Let him see your charisms. Wait for an opportunity. If there's an opportunity, say, Lord, say, Father, I would love to serve in this way. Okay, number four. Sorry to do this so fast, but never lose your passion because you will be tempted probably 48,000 times to be discouraged by your parish. And you can't give in to that because where are you going to go? The parish next door? Where are you going to go? This is where God wants you to become a saint. Allow yourself to be tempered and to be matured, but never allow your zeal to die. I have met a number of young men and women as well, but in my mind, I'm thinking of a number of young men that were 25 and full of zeal. They wanted to take back ground for the kingdom. And good, devout Catholics Beat that zeal out of them. You're just young. You're just naive. You're just simple. You'll grow out of it. You'll mature. And I have a really close friend that happened to. And it took him, I'm not kidding you, it took him eight years for the Lord to be able to heal that in his life. Because they beat the zeal out of him. So he could just be, what, another lukewarm Catholic? That's what we need. We need more lukewarm Catholics in our parishes. That's the answer. God wants you to have the fire of the Holy Spirit burning in you. That doesn't mean we are arrogant arrogant jerks to people, okay? But it also means that you never have to, never allow that fire to die. There were times when Francis Xavier was very discouraged. He never said, Lord, this is just too hard, I'm giving up. He never said, "I'm, I'm lonely, I'm homesick, I'm going home. He allowed that fire within him to motivate him to keep on going. Uh, Number five, you need small Christian communities. You will not survive as a faithful Catholic if you don't have good Catholic friends. And it doesn't matter if it's part of the parish or not, but you need to have friends that you're meeting with, that you're praying with, that you're studying with regularly. Not like, hey, we see them every six months. Like, no, like once a month, every two weeks, every week we get together, it's intentional. We pray, we eat together, we socialize, whatever it is. If you don't have small Christian communities, you will get wiped out. And number six, and the final thing that you can do is you can become a saint. Because it's the saints that bring renewal. Francis Xavier brought renewal. Francis of Assisi brought renewal. The saints are the ones that bring renewal. Yes, we have to be smart about it. Yes, we have to have the right programs. We have to understand parishes and all this nonsense that I talked about. None of it really matters, okay? What really matters is that we love God more than anything in this whole world. And if we love God more than anything in this whole world. And we bring that into our parish. We'll see our parish transformed. 
thanks for tuning in this week. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. This will help us to reach more people with the gospel. Once again, I'm your host, Gerhard, and you're listening to the Missionary Disciple Podcast by Catholic Christian Airreach. Until next time, God bless.